if you weren't here last week for the start of our series in Jonah, then you didn't get to hear that um, Aaron met a tattoo artist down at Solid Grounds that he commissioned to do this art piece uh, for this series that we're in. It's pretty great, isn't it? So if anybody wants to get a tattoo of it on their back, <laughs> we will pay for it. So just, just saying it's an option. Okay, um, uh, really quick, let's do a quick survey. How many of you guys loved Bomb Cyclone 2019? Okay. How many hated it? Okay, here's what I realized. Here's what I realized, that um, snow days are usually amazing. Snow days where you legitimately have to stay inside most of the day, not as good as the snow days where it snows a lot and you can go out and actually enjoy it. We had three kids sort of crawling up the walls, almost literally at some points in time. Storms are an interesting deal, aren't they? We're going to read about one in the life and story of Jonah this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah or the book of Jonah, maybe you weren't here last week, um, the book of Jonah is, is literary genius, which please don't hear me saying that that means it's, it's fairy tale or parable, it, it's, but it's, it's written geniusly. It's intended to be funny. And it's prophetic, which means that before it's parable, before it's literal, before it's either of those things, Jonah has a message for us. It's prophetic. That's the, that's the type of book that it is in the library of the scriptures. And Jonah's going to encounter a storm. I read about this storm in 1850 that just battered against the northern islands up in Scotland. And the tide rose, and as the tide rose and then came back out, it, the storm revealed these ruins that were underneath, ruins that were buried underneath these grassy hills that nobody knew was there. It's interesting. I think it's similar to the way that storms work in your life and the way that storms work in mine. We often think that the storm creates something. I'd like to propose to you today that the storm typically doesn't create anything. It just reveals what's already there. It reveals what's underneath. It reveals the things that we're, we're maybe good at keeping hidden on normal days. But when the storm rolls in and the call about the doctor, call from the doctor about our health or the, the call about the stock market crashing or, or any other thing like that, when the storm rolls in, it has this ten tendency to reveal what we're actually holding on to. It has a tendency of revealing what's, what's underneath it all. And so let's just take a moment and admit that we hate the storms of life, but we often need them. Is that fair? That, that we don't like pain, we don't like suffering. Listen, if, if I were to say to you, do you want an easy life or a difficult life? What, what do you choose? Right? You're probably like, well, I'll have to pray about that a whole lot. No, no, let me ask you another question. Do you want a significant life or an easy life? If you want a significant life, I'd suggest to you today that we actually need the storms. See, we love ease, but in, in order to grow, we, we need challenge. We resist pain, but we need it to move forward. And it's what we're going to see in Jonah's life today. 
See, what we see about Jonah, and as you're opening your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 4. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. It's acceptable all throughout this series and even beyond. Jonah's a short little book. He's part of the minor prophets. He's not minor because he's insignificant. He's minor because he's short, okay? And what we're going to see is that without a storm, there isn't a story, (laughs) These ruins that they unearthed, they originally thought were from around 600 BC as they started to study them more. They dated them in the late Neolithic period, um, somewhere between 3200 and 2200 BC. Without a storm, there isn't a story. Without a storm in your life, there's probably not a story. As painful as it is, and as much as it hurts. It's true of Jonah's life. Without a storm, there isn't a story. Part of what I want to do today and throughout this whole series is I want to rescue Jonah from the flannel board. (laughs) I want to rescue Jonah from being relegated to kids' stories. No offense to kids' stories. They're great. I'm glad that we teach the story of Jonah to our kids. That's a really, really good thing. Don't hear me saying it's a bad thing. But what's a bad thing is if we read it in the same way we read it as kids when we become adults. Because Jonah has something deeper, something sort of beneath the layers that he wants to confront us on. He wants to show us there's a prophetic message from Jonah that transcends the flannel board. Remember, Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh, and he's been given a task. Go to Nineveh and preach against it. Its wickedness has risen up before me, God says. And Jonah says, no thank you. Instead of going to Nineveh, which is almost due east, Jonah heads down to the port city of Joppa and hops a ship, and he heads to Tarshish, right? He refuses to go to this place of pain, Nineveh. Instead, he goes to this place that's a tropical paradise, this place of pleasure, Tarshish. And last week, we said that it's often easier to run from God than it is to trust God. Yeah? It's often easier to run from God than it is to trust God. And if we were to summarize Jonah, Jonah's journey is the journey of a resentful prophet who meets a relentless God. And today he's going to meet this relentless God in a storm, in a storm. Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, are you there? Let's roll. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, there's all sorts of of imagery that's going to sort of be called to mind as, as we read through this first chapter of Jonah. This word hurled is a really interesting word. It's a Hebrew idiom that actually isn't used anywhere else in the scriptures in reference to a storm. This is the only time it's used. But the narrator's making a point. If you continue to read through Jonah chapter 1, you're going to see a number of things are hurled. There's wind that's hurled. There's cargo that's hurled. And there's a prophet that's hurled. 
into the sea. Uh, the, the narrator's like waving a flag, like, don't miss this. Things are getting hurled everywhere. People probably hurled overboard too. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> but he's making a point. He's making a point. One of the major themes in Jonah, the Lord hurled a great wind. He, he's sort of echoing back, if you remember the very first few verses of Jonah chapter 1, do you remember anything else that was great? Nineveh. Nineveh. Same word. Go to the great city. Oh, you're not going to go to the great city? Meet my great wind. <laughs> Jonah, um, you can try to avoid my call, but you can't avoid my presence. Jonah, you refuse to go to the great city, but you will not escape this great storm. And all throughout the story of Jonah, we see this God's sovereignty that just pushes through. God appoints a prophet. He says no. But then God appoints a wind, and the wind says, and God appoints a, shit, a fish, and the fish says, yes. And God appoints another wind, and the wind says, Yes, and God appoints a plant, and God appoints a worm, and all of the creation that Yahweh has spoken into existence is saying yes, all of the creation except his prophet. So how does God get Jonah's attention? Through a storm. Through a storm. And if you're Jonah, and you're these sailors, and you're sitting in this open sea that's just being bruised and battered by this tempestuous wind and waves, you're thinking, God, we must have angered you. We must have made you mad. It's interesting because the storm often feels like punishment, but it's actually pursuit. The storm often feels like God's punishment. But it's often God's pursuit. And as we look at storms in our life, let me give you two broad categories that storms can fall into. Okay? Some storms come into your life because we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is not as God originally designed it without sin and living in God's shalom. We've fractured that through our decisions and the consequences of sin burrow down even into the soil of creation. Creation even longs for its redemption. We live in a, in a broken world. That's one category. But some storms come into our life through and because of direct sin. Sometimes our own sin, our own bad decisions, our own disobedience, um, that's Jonah in this story. But Jonah's not the only character in this story, you may have noticed. They're sailors too. What'd they do wrong? Nothing. In fact, as we're going to see, they do everything right. And it doesn't mean that they avoid the storm. It actually... Laps over from Jonah onto them as well. As Tim Keller said, all sin has a storm that's attached to it. But the storm isn't retributive, it's restorative. It's, it's not God's punishment, it's God's pursuit. It's God saying to Jonah, Jonah, look up at me. I love you, I want you. And it's his pursuit in two different ways. Let me show them to you as we journey through the text together. First, it's God's pursuit through rebuke. 
It's God's pursuit through rebuke. So let me, let me just say this as gently as I can, but I, I feel like it, it's, it's honest. Sometimes the most loving thing God can do for you is tell you you're wrong. Sometimes the most loving thing he can do is say, you're off. And we're going to see God's rebuke of Jonah in this very interesting, poignant way. The book of Jonah is going to use a literary device that we call satire. Okay? Satire is a technique that's typically employed in, in literature to expose or to criticize the foolishness of a group or an individual. It's used to sort of make an ironic play about the way that they're living in order for us to go, I wonder if I do the same types of things. It uses humor, it uses exaggeration, it uses ridicule, and it intends to improve us by criticizing us. I heard this phrase a few weeks ago that is a way that I'm going to invite you to respond when you get feedback. Typically, when we get feedback, we say something like, ouch, that hurts. When we find out something about ourselves that we didn't see, when somebody graciously speaks into our life and we go, man, I didn't see that, ouch, that hurts. What if instead of ouch, that hurts, we started to say, ouch, that helps. In fact, would you say that with me? Ouch, that helps. Let's say it again. Ouch, that helps. Yeah, I, I think reading through Jonah chapter one, I found myself saying, ouch, that hurts often. And then I remember this phrase, ouch, that helps. Maybe God's rebuke of Jonah and his rebuke of us through this literary device of satire, which by the way, doesn't mean that the story didn't happen. It just means the Bible's brilliant and we need to redeem it as such, please, okay? doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It just means that God employs all of these things in the writing of this book to get our attention. So I feel a little bit like a dentist this morning, and we're sitting down in the collective chair together, and I say, this is going to hurt a little bit, but it's actually intended to help. Verse four, here we go. Let's roll. How do we see God's pursuit through rebuke? There's four ways. Verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners and the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, his own Elohim. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They also hurled their career as sailors into the sea, because <laughs> their main job was to take cargo from one place to the next. But for Jonah, but Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Now, if you remember last week, you'll remember that Jonah hears the call of God and he goes down to Joppa. And then he goes to the ship port of Joppa and he goes down to the ship. And now we see that Jonah goes down into the belly of the ship and Jonah lays down and it's as though the narrator goes, it's about to go down. <laughs> Doesn't want us to miss that. And I, I promise I won't say that again. But <laughs> So the captain came to them and said, came to him and said, 
what do you mean, you sleeper? I think this is like an ancient cut down. Like, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise. Call out to God. Now remember, literary genius. We've heard this phrase, arise, before. Do you remember it? It's the way that Yahweh calls Jonah in verse 2. Arise. Go to Nineveh. Preach against it. So there's this like not so subtle wink and a nod to say to Jonah, hey Jonah, like if you're able to step back enough, maybe just maybe you can see who on this ship is actually more in line with my heart, actually more in line with my character, actually more in line with what I'm doing. Hey Jonah, you are quite literally and figuratively and spiritually asleep, but there are people who are awake. And they see what I'm doing, and they have this, they have this cry. Oh man, we want to see that we may know. We want to know what's going on. It says they cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They cast lots and it fell on Jonah. The sailors, the pagan sailors want to know, but the Hebrew prophet doesn't care. This whole scene is a Hebrew prophet being taken to prophet school by pagan sailors. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. And so here's what we see. God's pursuit of Jonah through the rebuke of his spiritual apathy. Arise and pray, say the pagan sailors. We're supposed to go, man, that's, that's funny. In a not-so-funny kind of way. The pagans pray and the prophets sleep. Jonah is the prayerless prophet. You read it. Read through entire chapter one. In the midst of this absolutely raging sea, Jonah is the only person, the only character in this story who doesn't pray. And as part of this satire, this genre of literature, as part of the satire, we have these stock characters, that are stereotypes in a sense. You have this prophet of God, you have these sailors, and you have the Ninevites all throughout these, this book of the scriptures. And none of the stock stereotyped characters display the kind of actions that we'd expect. The prophet is prayerless. The sailors are spiritual. And Nineveh is repentant. And the whole picture is being turned on its head. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. As I've thought about it, and as I've said, ouch, that hurts a number of times this week, what I've, what I've discovered, at least in my own heart and soul, maybe it's because I'm an optimist, an optimist or prideful, I'm not sure, it's hard to see spiritual apathy in my own life. It's hard to see it when we just look at ourselves, maybe. Maybe we're better at lying to ourselves than we typically think. But I do think one of the areas you can see spiritual apathy most is in a posture of prayerlessness. That when prayer starts to get relegated to sort of the spare tire in case something goes wrong rather than the steering wheel of our lives, that maybe there's something that's unearthed in us through the storm that shows us, man, prayer is 
not our default. Actually, it's complacency. And as A.W. Tozer said, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Yeah, Jonah gets taken to prophet school because I think his sin has acted as this sort of spiritual ambient that's causing him to be unaware of everything going on around him. He's the sleepy prophet. And he sleeps through his call, and he sleeps through God's activity, and he sleeps through all that God is doing in and around him, and the storm is sent to Jonah's life, and the storm is often sent into our life in order to wake us in order to wake us up. It's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to just coast through life. I think that might even be our default. I, I, just this earlier this week, I had tucked my kids in for bed and um, I, I had gotten their water bottles. And by the way, this is part of my therapy. So I'm just gonna tell you, um, isn't it ridiculous that I, my, my kids need water in order to go to bed, water with ice every night, on their stand, like right in back of their bed. Like they're unable to go to sleep without cold water. And I'm like, I'm trying to think back as a kid, like if you were a kid like before this generation, did we have that? Like, was that a thing? Were we just perpetually dehydrated or are we insane? Like what? Anyway, so I walk downstairs and I put the water bottles on the counter and I stop and I pause and I think to myself, what am I doing down here? Not like existentially, what am I doing? But why in the world did I walk down these stairs? Right, like, and I had this moment of, like, I totally forgot what I came for. And I thought, how much of my life do I live that way? Distracted, occupied, preoccupied. How often do we sleep just like Jonah? Yeah, God confronts our spiritual apathy wake up, wake up. And here's what he says to Jonah next. Here's how the story goes. And they said to him, the sailors said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they are going to ask four questions. Let's follow them together. And then I want you to keep in mind, they ask four questions, and then we're going to simply ask how many answers does Jonah give, okay? Four questions. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Uh, what's your job? Where do you live, and what's your, what's your ethnicity? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. They ask Four questions. You could say three if you wanted to. So, so two of them are sort of one question. What country are you from and where do you come from? So they ask three questions and Jonah gives them how many answers? One. No answer to the question, what's your job? No answer to the question, what's your zip code? One answer. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. I'll tell you my ethnic identity. And then he sort of tags on to this, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Um, that's, that's what we do as Hebrews. That's who we are. That's just sort of secondary to being a Hebrew. <laughs> it's interesting what's happening in this storm. Jonah, uh, along with the sailors, Jonah is being excavated. <laughs> 
And what we find out is that the most important thing to Jonah about his identity, the most important thing about Jonah to himself is he looks in the mirror and he goes, oh, I am so proud that I am Hebrew. Hebrew. And what the storm starts to do in Jonah's life and in our life is it's a rebuke against what's often a disordered identity. See, the storms excavate for us where we find our worth and where the foundation of our life really lays. It's only in the storm that we can often see things that we hold in our hands so tightly, things like success. We only know that's what we're building our life on when it starts to leave. Things like security, I've got this much in my bank account, we've got the emergency fund, we've got all of it lined up, it's all, it's all good. We don't realize, and those things are good, but we don't realize that they've become a key piece of our identity until they get stripped away. Yeah, yeah, Jonah's being excavated. I wonder how we might see this today. I, I love the way that Tim Keller puts it, he says this. He says, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racist and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. Ouch, that helps. (laughs) Ouch, that helps. I'm a Hebrew, I'm an American. I'm an African, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive, I'm a conservative, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Calvinist, I'm an Armenian, I'm a fill in the blank. Like, like before we start throwing stones at Jonah, maybe we just need to see Jonah a little bit. Maybe we need to see ourselves a little bit. And can I just, as, as gently as I can, in a, as pastorally as I can, press on us a little bit? If you call yourself a follower of the way of Jesus, so if that's you, if that's not you this morning, um, then you're welcome to find your identity wherever you want to find your identity. Good luck with that. And I genuinely mean that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have one central spot where you find your identity. You find your identity as being a son or daughter of the Most High God. And whether you are an American or an African, a Republican or a Democrat, a progressive or a conservative, or a Presbyterian or a Baptist, everything else, everything else, everything else is secondary. And it's a distant second. It's a distant second. So if you consider yourself a Christ follower, let me just ask you, I just want to just press on you a little bit. Is that at the core of your identity? If something else is there, can I beg you, repent. Repent. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and repledge your allegiance to him and him alone. Yeah, what's unearthed in Jonah in the storm is this identity that's been placed in something other than Yahweh. 
And we're going to start to see that even more as it goes on. Verse 9. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, Oh, really, Jonah? Tell us more about this God who made the sea. Who you're running from on the sea. Really, Jonah? Tell us more about that. And then it says, the men... Who heard, the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is it that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He walked onto the ship. Hey guys, um, where's the section for running from God? Because that's where I need to sit. <laughs> they know. It's not something he's ashamed of. It's something he's proud of. Verse 16. So after, spoiler alert, um, eventually the sailors throw Jonah over the side of the boat. You may not have heard about that. He's about to get eaten by a fish. We'll get there in a second. But So they throw Jonah over, and then it says this. The sea, and the, uh, the sea ceased from its raging, verse 16. And the men, say that with me, feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Don't miss this. This is brilliant. Jonah says he fears God, and the sailors fear God. For Jonah, this is religious mumbo-jumbo. These are words that you say if you've grown up around them. These are the prayers that you repeat. This is the mantra that you have as a, as a Hebrew growing up and, and going to prophet school. Yeah, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of the sea and the God of the land. And then you have the sailors praying, sacrificing, vowing, saying, I will live this way. You have Jonah, and Jonah is pure words. And you have the sailors, and their lives actually start to reflect what they say. Yeah, Jonah says he fears God, but it's a mantra, repeated words or phrases that he grew up around religion. The sailors fear God, they make sacrifices, and they make vows. What is going on? Oh, man. Yeah, there's this mirror being held up. Called the mirror of religious hypocrisy, the rebuke. We should be offended that Jonah would even suggest that he fears God. I mean, Jonah, seriously? I fear God? I fear Yahweh? And then you're going to run from him? You're going to not do anything that he tells you to do? You're going to try to get away from his presence, which you theologically know is impossible, but you're going you're gonna to do your best to get away from him? And his words and his confession of faith are in such stark contrast to the, to the prophetic pagans that were supposed to go, Jonah, are you kidding me? And the narrator of the book of Jonah is just drawing you in because the very moment you go, Jonah, are you kidding me? He steps back and goes, tell me about your life. So you've never said you believe one thing and done a different thing? You've never blown up at your kids behind closed doors and, and walked into church like everything was all right? 
You've never made covenantal commitments and broken them? You've never said you wanted to live the way of love, but actually it was just self-serving and lust? Really? Really? And Jonah, Jonah wants us to see that hypocrisy isn't a Jonah issue. Look up at me for a second. Hypocrisy is a human issue. We all struggle with it on some level. And maybe the most healthy thing you could do is in your life group this week while you walk through the study guide for Jonah is maybe you just start off by saying, I'm a hypocrite. And here's how I struggle with that. Here's how my life and my beliefs don't add up. You know what you're going to feel? You're going to feel this weight that begins to be lifted. <laughs> like, okay, I don't have to pretend anymore. I, I don't have to pretend. I can actually be honest, and in honest, there's, honesty, there's healing. I actually, as I was studying this today, er, today, this morning, when I wrote this message, no, this week, um, <laughs> I had all these, like, events that just started coming back to my mind. Like if, you, if you're sort of in the cultural moment, you read a lot these days about the church being on the wrong side of history. And there's this moment in the book of Jonah where the prophets see reality way better than, the, the prophetic pagans see reality way better than the Hebrew prophet sees reality. It got me thinking, are there ways and have there been ways throughout history that the world has seen reality better than the church? And I don't want to make it seem like all of our history is bad or tainted or wrong. There's some very beautiful parts to the history of the Christian church. There are some black eyes on it as well. The church has been on the wrong side of history in a few really important decisions. The church was an advocate for slavery, for segregation. The church didn't advocate for women's rights. And it caused me to think, what are, what are the situations today? And I know, I know this is a little bit uncomfortable. We'll come up for Aaron in just a second, but just stick with me. It, it caused me to think, are there any situations today where maybe, just maybe, the church can't see reality quite as well as maybe those outside of it? And maybe there's a voice or voices outside of the church that we need to listen to and humbly bring before God to say, God, is there anything that we're not seeing about ourselves? Like if everybody thinks that we're hateful, and judgmental, is there something we're not seeing about ourselves? If everybody thinks that, um, that we, we could care, couldn't care less about the LGBTQI community, is there something we're not seeing about ourselves? God, God are, there, are there voices from the outside that we need to at least listen to and hear? As the church, I'm convinced we need to listen to outside voices and prayerfully discern, is there truth here? And then we need to wrestle with this tension that ironically, ironically, please lean in for a moment, the Bible was used to defend slavery and the Bible was used to try to eliminate slavery. Same Bible, which should be a little bit of a, uh, it should make us aghast a little bit and, and step back to say the way that we read this book really, really matters. Yes? It really, really matters. Because you can use it for evil or you can use it for the heart of Jesus and you can justify both. 
Man, I long for a day when Gandhi's quote, I like your Christ, I do not like you Christians, you Christians are so unlike your Christ, just doesn't ring true anymore. I long for that day. May it be in our time. Okay. Verse 11, I told you we were coming up for air, not really, okay. <laughs> Remember, ouch, that helps. Okay, that's just my journey this week, you guys. And I'm, if I were the only one here, I'd preach to me. I need it. 11, here we go. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. I mean, notice how much the sailors want to save Jonah's life. Like, you would think that they'd be like, this is your fault? Hold your breath, buddy. But they're not. Like, it's the exact opposite of what you would expect, unless you're reading the book right. Then you go, well, yeah, I saw that coming. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You get the picture? The sailors are working overtime. We pointed this out at the beginning of our time together, but whose sin, or who is affected by Jonah's sin? Everyone. Jonah is. Sailors are. Anybody else on the sea at that time? See, in a, in a culture and day and time when we're, we're rugged individualists, we, we have this false belief in our mind, my sin only affects me. And as graciously as I can say it to you, and pastorally, I just want to tell you that's a lie from the absolute pit of hell. Your sin affects everyone around you. And it typically overflows to those closest to you quickest and most harshly. Jonah just doesn't seem to care about anyone except himself. He's decided he'd rather die than pray. I mean, all he has to do is utter one repentant prayer, and I think the storm stops. He doesn't do that, and he doesn't say, hey, guys, this is my deal. I'll jump overboard. He says, throw me. This one's on you. I mean, if Jonah's lack of care for the common good could be any more clear in this text, I don't know what it would look like. And so somehow Jonah has lost sight of the fact that as a Hebrew people, they were called to be, as the scriptures say, blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. See, Jonah is more concerned with his allegiance to the Hebrew people than he is with his allegiance to the Hebrew God. Man, there's... So I thought about this this week, right? This idea of the common good. And man, we have no shortage of illustrations of ways that we advocate and long for the common good. But let me just give you one, if this sermon hasn't been hard enough already. Um, let me just give you one that came to mind, the building of a wall. 
And so here's, please hear me on this. I know that everybody just got uncomfortable, okay? Please hear me on this. You're welcome. Ouch, that helps. Um, All that stuff, right? Please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. Wherever you fall on the building of the wall in here, that's fine. I can see both sides. I, I genuinely can. But here's where we cannot decide where we fall. We have to. As followers of Jesus, we have to. It's at the very core of what we believe. We have to affirm that God cares about all people, that all people carry the image of God, and that we are called. We are called. We don't get to choose. We can be Jonah and run away, but we don't get to choose. We are called to love people that come into our pathway. Now, here's the deal. The way that that plays out based on the limited resources that we have as a country, based on the legitimate needs that we have as a country, the politicians can figure that out. The church needs to figure out how we love. How we love. And I fear that maybe, just maybe, if we go, man, like what if that's what the church was known for? Like we just, we just, we want to love. We want to step into this as, as messy as it is and not choose sides, right or wrong, wall or no wall, but for us, we want to love. Maybe us and them, us versus them are tired categories. Maybe we just need way more we types of people. I get it. We probably don't know anybody that was killed, any of the 50 people that were killed in the shootings in the mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, but it should break our heart. It should break our heart. I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. Just Verse 17, we'll land the plane here. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And here's the place in the book of Jonah where people often go, what am I supposed to do with that? A number of you have sent me articles about people that have been swallowed by fish and have lived. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> no, I, and I, I mean that. Like, like send them to me. I, I get it. I get it. Um, <laughs> But here's, like, can I just, can I press on you for a moment? I'm not, and I'm not making fun of anybody. When we read this, we are not supposed to read it and say, that could happen. Please hear me. I'm not saying we, we should read it and think that it didn't. But our first thought shouldn't be, I could see how that could happen. If you read it historically, as historical narrative, that it literally did happen, please know you're in the stream of most of the early followers of Jesus and most of the Christians in the world up until this point, this day. But we shouldn't read it and go, that could naturally happen. We should read it and go, that's a miracle. And it happened because it's a miracle. And I'm not saying that it couldn't literally happen without God. I'm just saying that that's not how you're supposed to read it. Look, Jesus compares Jonah in the belly of the fish to him being in the grave. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And nobody reads it and goes about Jesus' resurrection. That could happen. In the sense that it could happen without God. It couldn't. Does that mean it didn't happen? Absolutely not. It means that it was a miracle. It meant that God acted, that we are not in a closed circuit system universe, that God breaks through. Miracles are possible, whether it's Jonah in the belly of a fish or Jesus walking out of the grave. 
It happened because God acted. I think that's how we're supposed to read Jonah. That this storm, oh man, I love that part. I have to skip it. That storm, this storm is God's pursuit through rescue. So it's his pursuit through rebuke. And it's also his pursuit through rescue. Notice something bigger is going on here. Jonah is at rock bottom. He's tossed over the side. The fish that seems to be an instrument of death is actually Jonah's salvation. Is actually Jonah's salvation. It's in this very moment of death that Jonah starts to be awakened to new life. Because sometimes reaching rock bottom or fish bottom or however you want to look at it is the only thing that will actually rescue. Jonah has gone down, 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 down. And finally, he's met the God that is at the bottom. We were studying this passage in our writing team meeting. And Yvonne had this great point, our, our pastor of Connections and Growth, and she said, you know what, reading Jonah makes us long for a better Jonah. And I thought, you're right, 100%. We long for the prophet who's willing to leave his home to share good news with the enemy. We long for the prophet who doesn't need rescuing, but is the rescuer. We long for the prophet who listens to God rather than sleeping through his call. We long for the prophet who lives what he believes rather than in hypocrisy. We need the prophet who will willingly sacrifice and lay down his life for the whole instead of having to just be thrown overboard. We long for the prophet who will bring the nations together rather than continuing to draw the tired lines. We long for that prophet. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So, as we close our time, can I invite you to just let Jonah excavate you a little bit? Let the storm that maybe Jonah creates, and part of my intention was to create a little bit of a storm in you tonight, today, because it created a storm in me. Maybe it's God's pursuit through rebuke, and you go, man, ouch, that helps. Maybe it's seeing our own hypocrisy or our apathy or our identity or our disconnection from the care of what goes on around the globe and the people around us. Or maybe it's just finally saying, I'm, I think I'm at rock bottom. And maybe, just maybe, there's nowhere else to go except calling out to God, God help. And see, in this story of Jonah and the story of Jesus, this beautiful picture is that it's in this moment of death that we're actually awakened to new life. So don't just read Jonah. Let him read you. Let the Spirit read you. Search me, O oh God. Search us. Know us. Show us if there's any way wicked or offensive within us and lead us in the way everlasting. If we're sleeping, wake us up, we pray. In Jesus' name.